Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I would like for you to join me in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2. But first... I want us to look over in the book of Leviticus. Seems a fitting place to start. Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Leviticus is, a, is an instructional book for the priests. It was a book of a law given to Moses for the priests so that they could make sure that the people worshipped correctly. Because one of the things about worship is we don't get to make our own rules. Uh, The rules are firmly established because worship is tied directly to the Creator Himself. And so the Creator determines the expressions of worship, those things by which He is edified and lifted up. So it was the rules for worship while they traveled through the wilderness. It was a book of expectations so that Israel would know that they're not free to make their own decisions. They're not free to make up their own rules because one of the things that we know is when we are free to make up our own rules, we will slip quickly into comfort. It's just what we do. And and God knows that that's what we will do. And when you slip into comfort, you will automatically begin to do what is right in your own eyes and you will find every imaginable way to justify it and to excuse it and to make excuses for it. In Leviticus chapter 18, this is only two years after Israel has left Egypt, two years into the wilderness. They are now at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were in Egypt for over 400 years and God was redeeming them into his care and out of the world. Redeemed out of Egypt, bought back, but also unto himself. So for generations they had been under the pagan gods and the spells of them and the teaching and the corruption of them. And it's very important to know that when you're under the influence of something, you can't, you have to recognize that you are being affected by everything that you're influenced by. They weren't allowed to practice their own faith. And so that all they had was the the pronouncement of their words. They weren't allowed to go. There was, there was no temple to God in Egypt. There, there, were, there was no system in place for them. All they had was the stories that were told to them by their great, 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 great grandparents. And those wax pretty thinly when you've not been delivered out of slavery for some time. They were a lot more pagan than they knew. If you were to ask Israel, are you still loyal to God? Every one of them would say, what? Yes, of course. But they were so much more pagan than they recognized. 
The one thing that they did know was pain and suffering, and they wanted out. And they called out to the God of yesterday, but they didn't know what it would cost. They were looking for freedom. They weren't necessarily looking for loyalty. So even after they were freed from Egypt, Egypt continued to pursue them, quite literally by way of an army. They get to the Red Sea, and God destroyed Egypt's army at the crossing of the Red Sea where Israel walked across on dry ground. But Egypt continued to pursue Israel, not by an army, but by their habits. And it didn't take very long when God brought to them the Ten Commandments. You remember what they did to combat the, the absence of Moses up on Mount Sinai while they waited for the, for the voice of the Lord to come and to give to them? While they waited for so long, they actually reverted back. When they got nervous, when they got anxious, when they became impatient, what did they do? That which came natural. They took off their jewelry, they made a golden calf, and they began to worship it, and they looked exactly like the Egyptians while they're waiting on their God to answer. It's obvious that when any time during that 40 years when they were threatened, their natural tendency was pagan. It was criticism, grumbling, intolerance. It's just what they knew. And they're, on the, they're, being, they're being led by God's man, by many signs and wonders, but they can't help but be pagan. They were not ready for the promises of God because they had been living in the compromises of Egyptian idolatry, immorality. And so Leviticus is a very important book because it defines worship for them. Uh, God, it seems, it seems to me that a lot of Christians want to learn obedience very slowly. Step at a time. Say yes to Jesus, step at a time. But listen, this isn't modeled for us in Scripture. Scripture is a very clear cut. God doesn't say, hey, we'll give you 40 years to figure this out. It's like right off the bat, here are the expectations of how my people are going to live. And there are consequences immediately if you don't. There's very, it's very cut and dry and very clear. So God doesn't slowly work them toward holiness. It is an immediate command. The first seven chapters explains the sacrifice system. This isn't a study on Leviticus. It's very important when we get to Revelation. The first 16 chapters, 1 through 16, is about corporate purity. It's about how the church should look, the the, the people of God and how they should look as opposed to the culture around them. In fact, the key word of the first 16 chapters of Leviticus is be pure. Purity is mentioned over and over and over. And the consequences for impurity are very clear. In fact, be pure is mentioned in 16 chapters 125 times. It's important. These are things you may not pick up when you read through the Bible a chapter at a time. You may not be able to see the magnitude of the importance that God puts upon these expectations. Chapters 17 through 
27 refers to personal holiness, how I am to conduct my Christian life. So the first 16 chapters are, is our lives communally. The next part of Leviticus is God's personal expectations of me. In fact, he says, be holy as I am holy 50 times. 50 times. We are his, and if we are his, there is proof. The proof is our purity, our conduct, and the comparison is the world, and the comparison is God's character himself. Let's look at chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. Because of that, you are not to do what you see done. You are not to live like you have seen and you are not to live like you will see because you're going to see some things as you go through the land that I'm giving you. Egypt is your past. Canaan is your future. Don't live like them. Your job is to establish a new way of thinking, a new way of living, that your life is the testimony of my character. It's important. It's heavy. It's almost like, it's so serious. It's like, these are his children. He grabs their chin and he says, look at me. You keep your eyes on me. That's how you're going to live. Don't you look back and don't you look forward. You watch me. Some of you have been told that before in your life. Maybe some of us need the reminder. Look at me. Because my name and my character matters. And because my name and character matters, your behavior matters. In chapter 18, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But in chapter 18, there is a primary word in just one chapter. And that word is nakedness. It's an odd word to be the key word. Nakedness is found in chapter 18 alone... 31 times in the whole book of Leviticus, 23 times in just this chapter. Nakedness is an issue. When you're looking at Egypt, Egypt was known for its nakedness, as was Canaan. In fact, it's fair to say paganism is known by its nakedness, its sexuality, its perversion. And over and over, the Lord is telling us what kind of nakedness not to perform or to look upon. Because it's all Israel had ever been exposed to. And where they were going, they were going to tell them that it was okay. 
So the Lord is establishing very clearly the, 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 the gatekeeper to immorality, nakedness. In verse 21, do not give your children to Molech. You're going, you don't know who Molech is yet, but when you get there, they're going to tell you that it's okay and that you need Molech's blessing. Throw your children into the fire. Don't throw your children to Molech. Verse 22, don't lie with a male like you would with a female. It's an abomination before the Lord. You've seen that, and you're going to see it again. You're not like those people. Not if you carry my name. Verse 23, don't have intercourse with animals. What in the world? That's like don't iron your clothes while they're on. Why in the world are we having to be given commandments not to have intercourse with animals? Because you've seen it. Oh, you're going to see it again. It's an abomination. Verse 24, don't live like the world that you've seen. Don't live like the world that you're going to see because it's, he says, it, by, by these things, they have defiled themselves and cut themselves off from me. Just because the culture says it's okay, look at me. Watch me. That's what the Lord is saying to them. Take your eyes off all the things, all the permissiveness, all the cultural cues, and look at me. Watch what I do. See how I live. I am the Lord your God. 21 times in the book of Leviticus, just in case you don't get it. Notice, Chapter 18, verse 4 and 5. You shall keep my rules, my statutes, my statutes, my rules. He, over, he says them two or three different times in verses 4 and 5. Verse 26. You shall keep my statutes and my rules. Chapter 18, verse 30. So keep my charge. He's very, very clear. You don't get to make your own rules. They all belong to me. So this... New Testament call to separation because I am the Lord your God. Do not turn back to the things that you have been redeemed from. Don't take the world as your cue because they have not been redeemed from it yet. Their permissiveness doesn't give you permission. It's very similar to what Paul told the church at Corinth Chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is a powerful part of this. It's easy to say, oh, you terrible people. What Paul is saying is, you used to be stuck in this kind of living. Why would he be saying this to them if there wasn't the temptation for them to go back, that which they had already been redeemed from? That's what they were doing. They were being lured back to what they had been re redeemed from. And he reminds them that they have been sanctified and they have been washed James chapter four, verse four, James says, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. 
John has already said, now the letter to in the book of Revelation is from Jesus himself, but John is the writer. First John chapter two, verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's a mark of true Christianity not to look like the world. To recognize what is worldly and what is not. If you go back into the Old Testament, you will see anytime Israel tried to do their own thing, God made it very clear that we should always be able to tell the difference between common and holy. He doesn't say holy and unholy. He says common, normal, accepted, permitted, tolerated. Compromised and holy, holiness cannot, will not be compromised. You can't conduct your life like the world and expect to please God. You also can't live like the world, think like the world, feel like the world, and escape God's consequences. It seems to me that The passive American church is trying so hard today to look as much like the world as it can. It's trying not to be offensive. Castigate any church that talks about holiness. Anytime you talk about holiness, you're regulated over into the legalist group. I don't mean the church should be working hard to offend people. I do not see at any time God pointing his finger in people's faces. But the holiness of God is offensive, and as long as we live in this world, it will be offensive. There is a gulf fixed between God's kingdom and the kingdom of men. There is this great separation, a divide, where God calls us out to look like something different. And if we think that we're going to give pleasure and glory and honor to the Lord by looking like that which he's redeemed us out of, we are sadly mistaken and deceiving ourselves. Well, we hope to gain some benefit from the world in order to reach the world. Need to make friends with the world. Listen, Let me remind you, the world is not your protector. The world is not your provider. The world does not offer salvation. The world is our mission field. It is not our gleaning field. And I hear people say, well, you know, the red words. Listen, the red words and the black words are exactly from the same place. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Jesus' words are exactly as powerful as any of the Old Testament writings because holy men of God 
were moved upon the Holy Spirit to write every word that was recorded. So if you want to give magnitude to the words of Jesus, to the exclusion of the prophets, then you are neglecting isn't like this. It's not fair to say Christianity, but certainly seems like the Western church has really struggled over the last several decades. I think that we got here by doing what was right in the moment without any thoughts about the future jeopardy. We, churches started becoming so desperate to fit in and to not miss out and to be relational that it forgot that that's not what we're called to be. And so a lot of churches just start doing what you know, doing, doing whatever worked for the day. What does it work to draw a crowd? What does it work? How does it work to, to make people happy? How will people pe- keep coming back? We just got to keep doing different things in order to, to get people keep coming back. And, and while there is room for that, that certainly isn't the goal of the church. Doing what works for the moment instead of thinking again about how does this impact the future? How does this impact the kingdom? And let me, the world always becomes hostile towards separation. You cannot expect to avoid hostility in this world if you're going to name the name of Christ. It, it can't happen. If we do, it's because we're compromising. Churches become compromising because people compromise. Christians compromise because they want to fit in, because they want today's advantages because they don't want to stand out and certainly because they do not want persecution. No, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to name the name of Jesus, but I'm going to be over here in the corner if you need me. Why can't I just believe in God and it not really affect my life too much? So today we're talking about Pergamum. It's the recipient of the third letter of Jesus to the churches. It's the next city on the postal route in Asia Minor. John had pastored Ephesus, and Ephesus was most likely the original or responsible for the establishment of all of these other churches. And John knew them, and what's more, Jesus knew them. Remember, John is a prisoner on Patmos. He is busting rocks. In chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation, he says for two reasons. Because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. That is incredibly important to know why the persecution has come to the apostle John. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The truth and the life. Holding both of those in balance has led John to persecution. And the world always grows intolerant toward Christians who refuse to compromise. John refused to compromise. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus has already introduced himself as the one with the two-edged sword in his mouth. Jesus showed his two-edged sword to the church at Pergamos. The description of the sword in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 helps us to associate it with the mouth of Jesus as well. Jesus is going to confront this church with the strength of his word, the sharp edges. 
It's really easy to see what Jesus is trying to get across. Fortunately for us, we have the end of the book too. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, listen to this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And then in chapter 19, verse 21, he says this. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So we see very clearly that this sword, double-edged sword from the mouth of Jesus, isn't just for imagery. It is a weapon that Jesus intends to wield well. It is a message of destruction and death. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13 he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Whew, that seems heavy. What this tells me is that in all the things that, God is about, that Jesus is about to tell them is, I've taken into consideration how difficult it is to live where you are. I mean, I, he's, he's, he starts off not great. You know, even Ephesus, who had lost their first love, was, oh, you guys are really, really good with the teachings there. You, I mean, you know, Smyrna, nothing but good things to say. Pergamus, right off the bat, I'm bringing a two-edged sword, and it ain't going to be pretty. But I, I have taken into consideration how difficult it is to be a Christian in Pergamus. You're in a tough spot, tough place. Yet... You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We don't know much about Antipas. Really, this is all we know other than just what church history has told us about Antipas. I don't know that his, necessarily for us, his life leads much for us to glean from, but history tells us that he was maybe even at the time the pastor at Pergamos and he took a stand. He was a faithful man of God who the people, the leaders of Pergamum had taken him, fashioned a copper pig. Isn't that funny? With an opening, put Antipas inside of the copper pig and roasted him over the fire in front of every other Christian in the city. Verse 14, Antipas is a good man. I know what a tough spot you're in. Faithful witness Antipas is a great, great uh, example of what could be happening there. Yet, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum was a throne of Satan. 
It's 100 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna is right between them. It was the next postal code. Pergamum was about 15 miles inland. What set Pergamum kind of apart from all these other cities is it wasn't a port city. There was no major trade routes nearby them. But Pliny, the historian, actually says, by far, Pergamum was the most distinguished city in Asia. They were proper. They were smart, intelligent, literate, well-read. Not only did they read, they wrote. Pergamum was actually Asia's capital at this point, had been for 250 years. In 133 BC, the last ruling king, independent king of this whole area, Mycia, is uh, actually bequeathed to Rome, uh, his throne, and that's when Rome came in and made it a province of, of Rome. In this classy, distinguished city, their library had 200,000 books. All handwritten, of course. Gutenberg hadn't gotten his bright idea yet. Well, he hadn't been born yet for a couple thousand years. It's the second only to Alexandria at the time. It's interesting, too, because just about... mm, not quite a hundred years earlier, Mark Antony had actually given Pergamum's library to Cleopatra because he loved her as his girlfriend at the time. His wife didn't like it too well, but Cleopatra seemed to like it. Pergamum defended the Greek culture in Asia even while it was under Roman rule. The reason that I bring all that up is because Pergamum had like two faces. Pergamum was this classy, put-together place of distinguished, literate scholars. And yet it was the throne of Satan. It had a very dark side to it. If you looked at Pergamum and said, wow, that's that's a city of light. Jesus said, no, it's where Satan lives. Not only where he lives, it's where he rules from. And there's lots of reasons as to why Jesus might have said that. I'm not going to go into all of those, but it did have a humongous temple to Zeus, Dionysius. Athena actually had a huge, or they had a temple there for Athena. And it was the first city that actually declared and demanded emperor worship. Smyrna had built to Emperor Domitian, but Pergamum had actually 50 years prior built three temples to Caesar Augustus. And they also demanded the pinch of incense, Caesar is Lord. Pergamus was also especially known as the chief city for Asclepius. Asclepius, most of you probably know this Greek god. He was was the god of healing and health. It was the snake, uh, still on our logo or whatever icon for healing today, Asclepius. Asclepius is represented by a serpent. They're actually in Pergamos at the temple to Asclepius. There was a medical school, a training center. Now, I'll just give you, I, know, I don't have a lot of time to, I'm almost done, believe it or not, but uh, yeah, I know it's funny. Uh, so, but 
You could, if you were sick, it, everybody who was diseased or sick within hundreds of miles would go to Pergamum. So they were like a center place for all these people. And when you got there, they would actually let you go inside to the temple of Pergamum and you could, you could spend the night. And you would take your, I guess your body, they didn't really have cots out in the temple, but you could lay down in the temple and they had hundreds of non-poisonous snakes all over the floor of the temple that just were there all the time. And what you would do is you would lay down in the floor and you would hope that these snakes would like you and start crawling all over you because that was proof that God, Asclepius, was coming to give you favor and take away all your diseases. Good times. I don't know which is worse. It actually sounds like the throne of Satan to me. Christians were targeted because they refused to sacrifice to the emperor. They had become a threat to the city's peace because if they didn't credit the emperor as God, then the emperor would not look as favorably upon Pergamum. Not only that, they did believe in all of these gods. And so if the Christians stood in opposition to those gods, Pergamum would have to forfeit favor with these other gods that they were choosing to worship. And so they hated the Christians They blamed them for any judgment that came upon them or they blamed them for the lack of blessing and the comfort that Egypt, I mean Canaan, I mean Rome could give them. This is obviously a recurring problem for the people of God. The book of Acts never talks about the founding of Pergamum. It does say that Paul traveled through on his second missionary journey through an area called Mycenae, which is where this is now. But he never, the scripture never talks about any preaching or any engagements and any meeting any people there. Most likely, this church was founded out of the church at Ephesus. These Christians who were in Pergamum had come under the, the sound of the gospel, but they kept getting sucked back into their past sins. And surely it started slowly, a little compromise at a time. But you know, like with any compromise, you end up in a place that you didn't mean to be. I mean, I think of Samson. You think Samson just wound up between these two pillars thinking, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. No, it's slow. It's, it's God says don't touch dead things. Samson touches dead things. It's God says don't, don't sleep around with those women. And Samson can't help it. And then don't eat this and don't eat that. Don't cut your hair. Samson just slowly etching his way back to the way that everybody else around him lived. Or David, who, when all the kings should be out to war, David is lounging on his couch and he's lusting after all of these naked women and he ends up, can't can't control himself. And he ends up in a place, how did I get here? Nathan the prophet, you're the man, David. Oh my goodness, how did I get here? The same way we do. Yeah, compromise. A little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. uh, Listen, there's nobody in here that doesn't understand compromise. That, doesn't, that can't go back and think of a time that you loved God a little bit more and it showed. That you were a little more consistent in your walk with Christ in your life. You know how you get away from that? One step at a time. Compromise, compromise. Before long, you end up in a place that you did not, you didn't mean to be, but you don't even know that you are. 
But we don't ask the same questions. Plus, the fear of persecution in these days kept them paralyzed. And in the back, paralysis always creates the perfect recipe for slowly fading back to the former way of life. And as we talked last week with Smyrna, there's a reason why this is the next church. I'm telling you, persecution in some forms are here, but there are other forms that are coming. And I know right now that persecution makes us go, I think I'm going to learn to keep my mouth shut. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, persecution always creates paralysis for some. And I think what you will do if you will be paralyzed or if you're going to be strong will all be determined on how much compromise you've allowed in your life. You'd think God would just deal with the worldliness around them, make it easy for them to be Christians. That's the same thing we pray. Lord, all these pagan people, just destroy them. That's what the psalmist always prayed. Anything that's a problem for me, Lord, just deal with it. You know how the Lord deals with it? Same way Peter told us he would deal with it. Judgment begins with the house of God. That's how he deals with it. No, no, no. You're going to want judgment? You want the world to be judged when the church is getting off scot-free? No, judgment begins with the house of God. But Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, you run a a really tight race here. I mean, am I going to flee persecution? Well, now I got to deal with Jesus. Or (laughs) I got to deal with Jesus. I think I'm going to move toward persecution. I mean, you got a choice to make. The one commendation is, I, I, I know you live in Satan's throne. Ephesus dealt with the synagogue of Satan, remember? That was the Jews. Pergamum's dealing with the throne of Satan, the Gentiles. These Christians are fighting a lion in the den. Hard for Christians to stand in Pergamum because of all of the idolatry, all the immorality, Jesus said, you hold fast my name. All right, now we're going to start moving pretty quick. So if you take notes, uh, do do it in in shorthand if you can. They're not denouncing Jesus. You hold fast to my name. They're not denouncing him. They're just not living for him. Listen, that's that's an indictment on everyone who claims the name of Jesus, but not the testimony. We claim the word but not his walk. They love Jesus and they love truth, but just like John. But unlike John, not his testimony. But there are among them, there are you. So you have some there practicing the teaching of Balaam. I'm going to give that to you very quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 23 kind of broaches out who Balaam is. I'm not going to get into that. Numbers chapter 22 through chapters 25, if you want to read that later, you can. What happens is Balaam is a sorcerer, apparently a gifted one. And he is a kind of a hired hand. And so Israel is almost at the end of their 40-year journey. And they get up on this land uh, called Moab. And the king of Moab is scared of Israel just like any other king would be of Israel because they got all these huge stories. (laughs) 
and I don't want to have to deal with their God. And so I'm going to hire, see, let me look it up, sorcerer, Balaam. Balaam, I need you to take care of Israel for me. And Balaam said, you got it. Here's how much my charge is. And they make all their exchanges. And Balaam goes out to the people of God and he curses them. Except the curse turns to a blessing. That sounds about right. He goes out a second time. Curse, boom, turns into a blessing. Goes a third time. Curse, blessing. What the world's up? He goes back to Balak and he says, I can't do it. I can't figure out how to curse them. Their God won't allow them to be cursed. I got another idea. So what Balaam does is he goes and he recruits beautiful Moabite women to start parading around all of these Jewish men. And these Jewish men had been told, don't compromise on this, but they were beautiful. So these Jewish men go into these Moabite women, Moabite women lure them to Moab, Moab lures to paganism. Before long, they are throwing their children into the fire, worshiping the gods of Moab. And Balaam goes, yes. If I can't curse them, I'll let them. If I can't corrupt them by curses, I'll corrupt them by compromise. Now, back to Pergamum. You've got people in your church that are following the teaching of Balaam. Oh, they're not cursing you. They're just leading you to compromise. And not just the teaching of Balaam, but also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You remember, Ephesus was actually patted on the back because they would not put up with the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but Pergamum is actually putting up with the doctrine, not just the actions, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's fine. It's fine. Whatever you want to do is fine. Balaam says, you need to return back to the way you used to live. It's fine. There's grace. God doesn't think that way anymore. And Nicolaitans were saying, it's fine. It's Egypt and Canaan. Drawing people back, telling them it's okay. Pergamum had... Christians participating in things that belong to the world. And they were excusing their worldly lives and indulgences and compromises, reinterpreting God's expectations of holiness because of the culture they lived in. And they were telling themselves, well, at least I'm not like those people. I mean, I am still claiming the name of Jesus. The church was looking more like a group of pagans calling out the name of Jesus. But they, they, the Jesus that they had crafted with their hands, not the Jesus of heaven. And while Christians were practicing the things of the world, the church was actually tolerating it, not dealing with it, permitting it, accepting it, minding their own business. But listen, church, we're not called to mind our own business. We are called to mind the business of God. And not to do that is to compromise. It's the same as those that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about all this list of sin, but not only those who do that, but those who accept it. So, 
Jesus' call is to repent, to turn, to agree with God, to change your mind, to go back and to hold fast His name and His testimony, His teaching and His testimony. Worldliness must be confronted. But let me, let me be pastoral for just a moment. This really isn't sermon material. Would you please help me by making that easy? If churches are to maintain holiness, there should be an easy way to do that. Self-government is such an easy way to do that. When Christians knowingly, willingly live in sin, you know how much harder that makes it for the church to be holy? You know, the greatest way to be a blessing is holiness. But when you live in such a way as to require a church leader to have to confront sin, it's Pergamum. This is why God over and over says, be holy, corporately, personally. Live holy. It's not my job to regulate that. Don't make the pastor or the deacons or the leaders to be the gatekeepers to holiness. Jesus is. Follow him. So many Christians live such compromising lives, you know, and, and, and not notice it. I mean, you don't just like blatantly go against God. It's this slippery slope of tolerance in your own life and you end up in a place and then somebody's got to say, hey, I don't think this is right. Why am I judgmental? No, I mean, I'm trying to be a blessing. I'm trying to help us to escape the persecution from man or the persecution that's coming from God with that sharp two-edged sword. I don't want that for any of us. And it's coming to the people he loves. And he's taken into consideration how hard it is to live here. But it does not change the expectations. So many people think if I don't get struck by lightning or if nobody confronts me, it must be okay. It's heavy as, rebuke is heavy for the Christians of Pergamum. You know, I mean, I, for those of you who don't know me, it sounds like I'm belly aching, and I promise you I'm not. But, you know, I've had to deal a lot with a lot of stuff. And, and it is never ever fun but you know what I have found is that when somebody finds out that you find out let's just go down to the next church it's kind of hard so I don't want to lose anybody so I won't say anything I'll just let the Lord deal with it here's how the Lord deals with it this is why it's important for us to be loyal to one another to be able to receive rebukes from one another. To be able to hear encouragement and correction from each other. That's why it's so important for us to be a family. And I, and I am not, not for a moment. For those of you who are, this is your first Sunday, this is, I'm not, we're not going to have open mic night. And, and my, my hope would be to be able to die never having to rebuke another person the rest of my life. I do not, I do not play the judge well. I don't want to be. I'd rather just sit back and let's just love each other and serve the Lord together. So just know that that's my, that's, my, that's my hope and that's why I preach this sermon 
is to avoid any crises. But you know what? Even if you go to a church that tolerates it, Jesus won't. Oh, I mean, you might today because he understands the world you live in. But he won't forever. He definitely won't for eternity. So what's the answer? Repent. Agree with me, the Lord says. Change your mind about what you call sin. Agree with God. So, to him who overcomes, this is to him who refuses to compromise or willing and is willing to repent, you're going to get three things. One is the hidden manna. Hidden manna, remember, that's the honey bread of the Old Testament. That's that special recipe from God's own kitchen to sustain and feed God's people when they had no other way. Well, in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the... He is the bread of life, the bread of heaven. The hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? Jesus Christ himself. That's what you'll get. If you overcome, you'll get Jesus. Not only that, you'll get a white rock. Yeah. Love those white rocks. A white rock in those days were for competitions, athletic competitions. If you were to win today, they give you a blue ribbon with a medal on it inscribed with the event that you participated in and won. Then they gave you a white stone that had in it carved what you won. And at the end of all of the festivities and the athletic events, only the victors were allowed to go to the feast. And when you went in, you had to give your ticket. And your ticket was your white stone. It's proof that you had overcome, that you were the victor. So what Jesus is telling the church is if you will be holy as I am holy and you will recognize that I am the Lord your God, I'll give you your own ticket to the marriage supper of the Lamb and you can sit with all of the other overcomers for all eternity. Oh, and there's a new name written on it and only you will know it. Now, listen, I love this idea, and I want to close with it. I want you to think about this. When I was born, my mom and dad gave me a name. When I was born again, my father renamed me. I don't know that name yet, but one of these days, as I am born into his everlasting kingdom, I will find out what my new name is by the father who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's going to be a unique relationship. Nobody else has that new name, only me. The Father knows me by that name. And one day on that stone, it'll be my unique stone where he calls me by name. His name for me. Not the name I called myself, because I'm not looking back. But for all eternity, I'll be known by his identity, not this one. So I know that it's tough. It's tough to hear a message like this about compromise. But we're in good company because there is not a person in here that hasn't experienced it or is experiencing it. What I want to do is to call us back to that place of holiness, 
not what seems right to us or what our culture tolerates or what our world has said is okay or not okay, but what does it look like to live the word and the life of Jesus Christ? And that life is worth being persecuted for because even in death, we become overcomers. Let's pray together. Lord, I just ask this morning that your spirit would do a work in us. I thank you that you are abundantly clear. And I pray that that today we will remember that if anyone who has an ear to hear will hear what you say, not what I say. I thank you for the rails. I thank you for the boundaries. I thank you for the clear expectations. While we may not like it because it goes against our nature, uh, Lord, we do learn to trust you. And I pray that where we have this slow fade, this, this life of gray, where the world and the church are pretty much indistinguishable, I pray that our personal lives and our corporate lives together would be different, and not for offense's sake, But love, spiritual love, must be an offensive thing. But Lord, I would so much rather spend eternity near your throne than elevated in a culture that celebrates Satan's. So help us, Lord, to be holy as you are holy. Help us to be pure. Help us to know your statutes, your commands. Help us to walk faithfully knowing that You are our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand if you would, please. And and while I call us to prayer very specifically, and this is a a hard thing to hear, but I want us to be very careful this morning. If there are areas in your life today where you know that you're compromising, I beg you, repent. It's the only admonition to the compromisers. There's not or this or this or this. There's only one. If you're here this day, today, and, and the compromise is here, or the compromise is here, or the compromise is already out here, I beg you today, let today be a day of repentance. If you want to come, somebody will come and pray with you and We'll work, we'll work through whatever it is together, I promise. But today, let's celebrate the freedom that we have in the holiness of Jesus Christ. If you feel like you are far away from God, maybe you're not, maybe you don't even are not even aware of what the compromise might be in your life, but you don't feel as close to him as you once did. Let today be a day of compromise and ask the Spirit to search, to search you out and to be able to know and let the Holy Spirit Himself be your teacher but let's walk away clean and let's walk away pure. Father, we live in uncertain days for sure. I don't mean just as the world, I just mean even in our own context. And uh, this morning I just ask, Lord, that you would uh, be merciful to us give us ears to hear help us Lord to 
to be obedient to your word and to your testimony. And may we walk faithfully, live faithfully. And may we not only batten down our own hatches, but I pray that the kingdom would move through us. I pray that we would walk with boldness and power. I pray that we would walk with authority, not our own, under the authority of Jesus Christ, our King. Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I thank you for using citizens of that kingdom to expand that kingdom. And Lord, may we walk with the testimony of an Antipas. May we walk with the testimony of those faithful men from every generation, the remnant that has always kept their eyes focused upon you. And may we not pacify our sin. May we not even grade it. But may we as your people be known by a new love, a new way, a new name. Lord, I pray that as we come to the end of this invitation that you will not stop your calling us, your drawing us, that your conviction doesn't stop with an amen. Lord, I thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by you. And today we proclaim the name of Jesus. And in that name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.